Good morning, everyone. Peace be with you. Thank you. Uh, like Colleen said, um, my name is Dodds, and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, today, we are concluding our series in the book of Exodus. Uh, have, you, have you enjoyed it? Uh, okay. Well, well, it's almost over, um, so I won't have to wait much longer. Um, no, I do hope that you've enjoyed it. We hope that you've enjoyed it. Um, as we come to this final chapter, I did want to read the words that we have read almost every single week, but I want us to hear them again uh, for the first time, as it were. The book of Exodus tells the story of Israel's divinely orchestrated deliverance from slavery for the purpose of serving as God's chosen priestly kingdom in the midst of the nations. The Exodus reveals for all God's people, both then and now, what it means to be redeemed by God and what it means to worship him and serve him. The Exodus is our story. It's the history of God's people, therefore it is our history. And the Exodus is for our instruction, as Paul says in Hebrews. The Bible invites us to apply this ancient narrative directly to our lives as 21st century Christians. And this week, as Colleen read, we're looking at God's house, the tabernacle. Now there is a great deal of detail in chapters 25 through 31 about the instructions of the tabernacle, and there is an equal amount of detail in chapters 35 through 39 about the construction of the tabernacle. So while we could get into the depths of those chapters, it would not, and it would not be a fruitless endeavor, most certainly. But what I want to do this morning is to telescope out just a little bit and talk about the theology of the tabernacle. That said, it will still be fairly detailed, but I do hope that it will prove to be both a helpful and beautiful end to our time in Exodus. So with that said, let's begin with a brief recap. So going all the way back to the beginning, when Israel came out of Egypt, they were a homeless collection of tribes descended from Abraham. And for 400 years, 10 generations, think about that, for 10 generations, they were enslaved. And after God freed them from, uh, from Pharaoh, he revealed himself to Israel as the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. And when he did that, he showed himself to Israel as their truest ancestor, their most faithful patriarch. He made good on his long-proclaimed promises to Abraham to release Israel from bondage, to make them into a great nation, and to give them a land. He brought them out of slavery through the waters of the Red Sea into the wilderness as infants fresh from the womb. And in a place where physical sustenance was impossible, he fed them and sustained them with water and bread. He showed himself to be their loving father and their most benevolent provider. And in order to call Israel forward into history, to take them from infancy to adulthood, he brought them to Mount Sinai. And he revealed himself there as the God of heaven, appearing to Moses in that wondrous glory cloud in the sky. He set Israel apart as a consecrated nation, and he gave the people laws and commands which provided them a firm foundation so as to guard them from drifting through time and to ensure that the nations around them would be blessed through this holy, consecrated kingdom of priests. 
He showed himself on Mount Sinai to be their supreme king and their cosmic creator. And though they rebelled and created the golden calf to replace his promised presence, he also showed himself to be a God of mercy, forgiving their idolatry, renewing the covenant with them. And after promising his presence to the people and showing his glory to Moses, he tells Israel to build a house where he will dwell with them. Now, since Genesis 1, since Genesis 1, when the earth and all of its filling were created, God has always intended to live in a holy relationship, sharing his presence in his glory with a holy people in a holy realm through a holy representative. It was that way in the garden with Adam and Eve in the garden. It was this way with Moses and Israel and the tabernacle. But since humanity's exit from the garden in Genesis 3, God had not dwelt with man since that time the way he did with Adam. From Genesis 3 until now, he has only descended to meet and speak with his people. But in the tabernacle, we see God not only descending, but dwelling. For 400 years, Israel was made to build Pharaoh's house with brick but now they're being called to build Yahweh's house with Pharaoh's gold. How about that? God is undoing his children's slavery, brick by brick. In the final 16 chapters of Exodus, 13 are devoted to the instruction and construction of the tabernacle. And though the reading of those 13 chapters may seem tedious, they actually bring us to the heart and drama of the narrative. Let's listen to the psalmist's meditation about this in Psalm 84 on the blessedness of God's house. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Yahweh of hosts. My soul longs, yea, faints for the courts of Yahweh. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Yahweh of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. The word dwelling place here means tabernacle. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Yahweh of hosts. See, God never meant for Israel to just live on the mountain forever. So in these instructions, God is calling Israel to construct a portable mountain, a mobile residence for Yahweh as he dwells among his people. Let's read from Exodus 40 again. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony and you shall screen the ark with the veil. And you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. You shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. And then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. 
So the construction of the tabernacle, these detailed descriptions of its furnishings, it all functions so as to offer Israel a tour of God's house. It's a sensory experience to the significance and splendor of God's home. So in doing so, what Yahweh is actually doing miraculously, as it were, is what he showed to Moses in the glory cloud, he's now showing to Israel. The tabernacle was meant to mirror Mount Sinai. God instructed Israel in Exodus 25, let them make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell in their midst. So the tabernacle in its architecture and its furnishings constructed according to the pattern of Mount Sinai actually becomes a mobile, holy, heavenly realm. The tabernacle becomes a movable taste of heaven on earth. Yahweh will now dwell with his people and Israel will go wherever Yahweh leads. And as I said before, chapters 25 through 31 and 35 through 39 describe the materials and furnishings that were used to construct and fill the tabernacle. And it's a, it's a menagerie of color and texture and design, a construction that engages all of the human senses, sight, taste, sound, smell, hear what we hear in that room. It's use of wood and bronze, silver, gold, scarlet, purple, and blue linen, along with fine incense and bread and water and fire and light. God's house is lavishly adorned. The tabernacle also, interestingly enough, shares a number of similarities with the Garden of Eden. Eden was a garden tabernacle where God dwelt with his people. And just like the garden, the tabernacle is also composed of three main parts. The Holy of Holies, containing the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. The Holy Place, containing the lampstand, the bread, the table, and incense. And the outer court, containing a laver, which is a basin filled with water, and the altar. But there is a fundamental difference between Eden and the tabernacle. Eden was created before sin entered the world, and the tabernacle was constructed in the midst of a sinful world. So, let's consider the furnishings of the tabernacle. So, the Holy of Holies had the shape of a perfect cube. It was the most central part of the tabernacle. Like the mountaintop of Sinai, it represented the heavenly dimension the cosmos where God dwells. It was heaven, the mountaintop. And the Ark of the Covenant was placed there, and that demonstrated God's presence with his people on earth. Cherubim were woven into the fabric of the curtain that set apart the Ark of the Covenant, but cherubim were also sculpted into the Ark itself to form what was called the mercy seat, which was God's throne and footstool. So just as cherubim stood guard on the way back to God's presence in Eden, and just as the cherubim stand guard around God's throne in heaven, these woven and sculpted cherubim guard the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. Now, this most lavish environment represented God's unseen heavenly throne room in the midst of his ministering angels. It was the throne room on earth. It was an extension of God's heavenly throne room and the place on earth where God's heavenly presence dwelt. And inside the ark were the stones upon which God had written the 10 words of his covenant with Israel. Now in being centrally located, it's very important that the tablets were there 
because it's a centrality of God's word, the centrality of God's commands. It showed that God's word was central to the life of the people of God. And it also promised that God would continually reveal his commandments. Can we even see in that why the psalmist would say, how lovely is your dwelling place. My soul faints for the courts of Yahweh. Now immediately outside of the Holy of Holies was the holy place, which served as an object lesson for Israel's place and Israel's mission in the world. Because the holy place contained the lampstand, the bread, the table, and the altar of incense. And each object that was in that room in the holy place was made with precious gold, but each object also represented heavenly realities. When taken all together, the objects represented God's presence with his people. The lampstand was the only source of light in the room, but it was rich with symbolism. Imagine this, the lampstand was the tangible, observable truth that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. It was fashioned to resemble the tree of life in the garden, possessing seven branches with cups that were shaped like almond blossoms. And just like the tree of life in the garden, the lampstand reminded Israel that true life was only to be found again in God's presence alone. Now opposite the lampstand was the table and the 12 loaves of showbread. These 12 loaves represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And each week, the priests would go into the holy place to eat this bread in the presence of God, representing God's desire to fellowship and eat with his people. At Mount Sinai, Moses and the elders ate and drank in the presence of God midway up the mountain, and that corresponds to the holy place, which is also the midsection of the tabernacle. So as the 12 loaves were being eaten by the priests, it represented all of Israel being incorporated into the priesthood, caught up and united into this priestly ministry. And in this way, all of Israel was a priesthood. All of Israel was called to serve the nations. The priests were caretakers in God's house, which was, was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. Thus, Israel was bread for the priests, but Israel was also bread for the nations. On that golden altar, incense burned with a fragrant aroma, and it represented the prayers of the priests and the saints. The priests would pray at this altar so that their prayers would ascend into the presence of God, and they would actually watch. It was all of this, can you imagine the visual that all this was? You could touch it, you could taste it, you could... You can see it, but they would stand at this altar and they would watch as the incense of smoke would penetrate that veil between the holy place and the holy of holies. If we take it to Mount Sinai, it's like clouds around the hilltop. Now, the outer court was accessible to all Israelites. It symbolized the visual earth and seas where all of humanity dwells. According to Exodus 20, the altar on the outer court was called an altar of earth. And it was placed next to a wash basin called the laver, and that laver symbolized the sea, earth and sea. Both objects were made of bronze, common metal, which is in contrast with gold, which was in the holy place in the holy of holies. And on the altar of burnt offerings, offerings were made for atonement of sin. Indeed, 
uh, excuse me, instead of the death of the sinner, an animal was offered. And so the basin for washing served as the practical purpose of allowing priests to wash up after the messy process of animal sacrifice, but it also provided a picture of consecration for service to the tabernacle. So as the priests came into the holy place, they would perform this cleansing ritual in order to represent the people before God. So if you think about it, again, the structure of the tabernacle is like the structure of a house. There's a courtyard. There's a place for cooking meals. There's a place for washing up. There's a dining room with a table, with food, with bread, a lamp for light, an incense altar, sweet-smelling dining room, as it were. And then there was an inner room, an inner throne room, where Yahweh is enthroned above cherubim. But here is where, again, where the tabernacle diverges a little bit, just a little bit from Eden. Because it's not simply a resurrected Eden. This is a new creation. The tabernacle is a new creation. When God made Eden, Adam and Eve filled it through their multiplication and fruitfulness. Be fruitful and multiply, he told them. But here in Exodus 40, it's like the roles are reversed. Israel builds the tabernacle, and then God fills it with himself. See, the house is like Eden, and yet it's something new. Adam was called to grow the Garden of Eden. Later, as we'll see, the prophets will envision the temple getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so the tabernacle manifests God's local presence, but because it's a new Eden, because this is a new creation, we should expect that this local presence will grow to a global presence. So God has commanded the building of his tabernacle, and as it's written, Moses did all that God commanded. Israel did all that God commanded. And then this happens. Let's read verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys." So Yahweh's presence fills the tabernacle. The holy, consecrated place is filled with the presence and glory of God himself. Like we said before, since Genesis 3, the Lord has not been this close to his people, but none can approach it, not even Moses. The glory of Yahweh is so holy and amazing that no one can come close. But like Paul says in Hebrews, the tabernacle is a shadow of what was to come. The tabernacle comes to its fullest expression in the new covenant in Jesus and his body. Jesus is the holy one in human flesh whose holiness consecrates everyone he touches. Jesus is the dwelling of God on earth, the one whom John said he tabernacled among us. In Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwelt bodily and we have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. See, he's the place where we have access to the Father. Through his death and resurrection, he was the tabernacle that was destroyed, and three days later, it was rebuilt. And when he died on the cross, when Jesus died on the cross, the temple curtain embroidered with the cherubim and the starry heavens above, that curtain tore. 
And when that happened, Jesus opened up a new and living way into God's presence. It was a picture of God's presence breaking out of the Holy of Holies and into the new world that he was creating. And in this resurrection and in his ascension at Pentecost, the Spirit comes down to fill the church as this new humanity. And now the presence of God through the giving of the Spirit, has turned every Christ follower into a mobile tabernacle where God's Spirit dwells at all times. He is the one whom we gather here to offer our praises and to eat and drink and rejoice because Jesus comes to us now by the Spirit who inhabits his body. The church is the assembly of saints, the holy ones. The church is the dwelling place of God in the spirit. And we rejoice before Jesus as we assemble here in this tent of meeting. As Revelation 21.3 says, the tabernacle that long represented God's dwelling among his people will be among his people forever. God and the lamb will be our temple and we need no other. The tabernacle is not simply a metaphor for the church. Jesus establishes the church as an actual tabernacle. In Christ's ascension and the descending of the Spirit, the church has become this new temple, this new tabernacle, the better Eden, heaven on earth. God truly does dwell here with us in our midst right now. And as you heard Britt say, we stand here as forgiven family with our God, heaven on earth. So now every Sunday when we gather, when we come through those doors, we're not just coming through the doors. We are rehearsing the Exodus every single Sunday. Every Sunday. We come out from the wilderness, out from Egypt, into this place where God is. Everything about the tabernacle is fulfilled in Jesus. Everything. Both the altar and the basin are fulfilled in Christ. The sacrifices of bulls and goats look forward to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The book of Hebrew regards Christ as the high priest of a greater and more perfect tabernacle who entered into the holy places by the means of his own blood and not the blood of animals. Thus, because of that, the blood of Christ gives us confidence to enter the holy places, both the holy place and the holy of holies. The washing of water is fulfilled in the blood of Christ and in baptism. In Revelation, before the throne of God, all the saints from every nation wear white robes, all of them. Their robes are washed and white because they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So washing in the blood of, the, of Christ does not stain us all red. It washes us all white as snow. And God's commitment to fellowship with his people is seen in Jesus who came eating and drinking with sinners. And so God's commitment to fellowship culminates in this communion table, this new chobread table in the new temple. So when we come and take of his body and blood each week, when we partake of communion, we do so here with God's tabernacling presence. And we do so as priests incorporating the body of Christ into our own bodies we are sent out to take the bread of life, the news of Christ to the nations. And because we're a royal priesthood in this new temple, our prayers rise in the presence of God as a fragrant offering. And just as the altar of incense burned continually, so Jesus lives to make intercession for all of us. So we are to pray without ceasing. And just as the high priest would take the incense from the altar into the holy of holies, Jesus, our great high priest, mediates for us and ushers our prayers into the throne room of God. 
It's only by the sacrifice and atonement and the sprinkling of blood that our prayers are accessible are acceptable before him. We pray in the name of Jesus precisely because Jesus is the high priest who became the sacrifice. He alone has been appointed to bring our petitions before the Father. And in addition to this, we're continually washed by the word. As it says in Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. And all of this, all of what Christ fulfilled in the tabernacle, all of this mirrors our progress through the Christian life. We approach God through the gate, which is Christ. We receive justification through the sacrifice of Christ. He makes us priests. We're baptized, consecrated for service, and continually sanctified through the water of the word. We are united to the vine, and then we serve as the branches. We partake of communion and fellowship with God. We offer worship and prayer as a fragrant offering to the Lord, and we stand bodily in the glorious presence of God through the torn curtain of Jesus' flesh. Now, the tabernacle ensured that God's mission would advance despite sin, despite it. The church is purposed not to fail. The outer court made access to God's presence possible for his sinful people. In fact, the tabernacle made access to God's presence possible for the entire world. This was supposed to have been a house of prayer for all nations, and so the holy place empowered Israel to act as a prayerful and witnessing community in fellowship with God. And that is our job as the church. Except that today, because of Jesus, the nations through the church enjoy greater access to God than ever before, than ever before. The sacrifice of Christ opens access for sinful people into his final, ultimate temple, which not only reestablishes Eden as the garden temple, but escalates it into a garden city temple. And this Garden City Temple is and will be the church, and it grows and expands as the church grows and expands. The church will continue to grow and expand until Christ returns and recreates the heavens and earth as a consummated cosmic temple for all eternity. So just like Israel, what we do day to day is we create space and we watch God fill it. We open our hearts to the Lord and he fills it. He dwells within us. We open our lives to one another and our neighbors, and God fills that space with his presence. We share our table with people that we live next door to and our coworkers, and God communes and meets us at that table. He fills that space. We open our homes, we multiply parishes, we plant churches, and the Spirit of God comes in power and glory to reconcile all things to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we join the psalmist to tell you how lovely is your dwelling place. How lovely are your courts. Lord, I pray that we would, that you would make us a people that know that every Sunday that we come into this space and we sing praises to you, we're reminded of our sinfulness, we confess our sins, we stand forgiven, we hear the word, we pass the peace, and then we come to the table together and then we're sent out back into the wilderness, Lord, to bring you glory, to live for you. Or would you make us a people that more and more don't just see that this is just a room that we walk into every Sunday, but that as we come in, we come into the presence of God. We come and have our sins dealt with. We come and we hear your marvelous word. We come and we offer prayers and praise. And you make us a people who long 
and who are faithful to welcome the nations, Lord, that they might know you. Lord, and we're grateful for the promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. And so we pray that your kingdom come and your will be done. We pray to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. Amen.